morning, church. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Mark chapter 12. In a moment, we will consider verses 13 through 17 together as you find your place. Uh, let me uh, quickly make mention of what's happening this coming Wednesday night. Uh, we, this last Wednesday, finished our uh, second quarter of Equip as we're studying the church together in four different classes, rotating through them. And we are now at the halfway point. Many of you have been faithfully attending these classes, and I hope it has been a benefit to you. At the end of every quarter, though, we take a break and do something a little different. And this Wednesday night, because it's the halfway point, uh, our break is going to be a question and answer time in the fellowship hall uh, with me. Uh, ideally about the church, the subject that we're studying on uh, Wednesday nights, it will likely devolve into an ask anything, which is fine. Um, but this is, I, we want to open this as an invitation to all of you. So whether you are able to regularly come on Wednesday nights or not, we would love to have you this Wednesday night. Uh, starting at 6.15 uh, in the fellowship hall, because I know that this teaching, uh, these different classes have created a lot of questions for us, good questions. And I want to be able to give, give uh, an opportunity for you to ask those uh, of me. So we'll do that this Wednesday night. And then our third quarter of Equip, and it's never too late to join. So you could join us the following uh, Wednesday night. Uh, this Wednesday, children, students, preschool will all be meeting in their areas and all of the adults will be in the fellowship hall. Would you stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word? A short section, likely a familiar section of scripture from Mark 13 to Mark 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, as we have already confessed in song this morning, need you. For you are our great God and King. You have called us, your church, to your service, made us members of your family, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for your possession. We belong to you, and we need you, O oh God. May we marvel at your son, Jesus Christ, today. May we make much of him. Would you help us as we come to your word, what will be for many a familiar passage, and when we see the marvelous teaching of Jesus. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. 
I think it was yesterday, maybe it was Friday, at home, the subject of my sermon this morning came up. My teenage son quipped, just tell them to pay their taxes and we can be done quickly. (laughs) Unfortunately, that will likely not be the case. And here's why. Typically, the more quoted or well-known a verse is in the Bible, the more misunderstood it is. And this is especially true, I think, for the teachings of Jesus. Culturally, the, the passages that people will often quote, things like, judge not, lest you be judged, are so twisted and maligned by those who are quoting it and seeking to use them out of context that sermons on these brief and well-known passages often require more explanation to kind of set our minds right on the subject. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. If you're new with us, every now and then I give this disclaimer. I, a disclaimer. I, I preach long sermons anyway, but every now and then I just say this. I'm going to preach till I'm done today. I have tried my best to shorten this as much as I can, but I believe what I have to say is needed for our congregation and, f- and for you. And so I hope you will um, sit back and process this with us. The main idea of today's sermon is that Christians should obey civil authorities and the Lord according to the honor due each of them. I've entitled this sermon, Image is everything more more to get your attention than anything because we live in a world and really uh, confess even in Christianity and confess what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus here in this text. It kind of comes from the text, right? the, The Pharisee says, you're not swayed by appearances, but Jesus is going to, in a way, appeal to appearances. He's going to appeal to two images, the image of Caesar in the image of God. And he is going to contrast these two things and yet tell us to honor and obey both according to that which is due them. And what I want us to see this morning is that both civil authorities and the Lord should be honored and obeyed, yet not equally. And some of you are going to struggle on the front end of this where we talk about honoring and obeying the civil authorities and others are going to struggle on the back end where we talk about honoring and obeying God above all else. But both of these are commands in Scripture. We probably being familiar with these verses, they, they seem to lose some of their impact. So if I could, as we're going to spend the vast majority of our time just talking about the last verse... I want to explain to us what's happening in verses 13 through 16 as as you get to this brief teaching of Jesus about rendering to God, uh, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar and rendering to God's what is God's. Jesus is now in Jerusalem in the last week of his life. It is Tuesday, following kind of the traditional uh, Passion Week, last week of Jesus' life. He's entered into the temple departed it, 
comes back in the next day, clears the temple, goes out, comes back in. On that next day, the Pharisees come to him, uh, not just the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite of Jerusalem, come to him and really, as we saw last week, ask this question, who do you think you are? And Jesus tells them the parable of a man who plants a vineyard, right, and the tenants of that vineyard and the, and the, the messengers representing the prophets that come to him and the son of, God, son of the master ultimately comes. This is the son of God, Jesus, for telling what will happen that week to them and how they will reject him and that God will turn the vineyard over to others. That was radical. It was a radical challenge to the Sanhedrin who had a grip on the power of the day in Jerusalem. But this radical teaching of Jesus doesn't stop being radical simply because we get to a passage that is familiar to us. One could argue that what Jesus does next is far more radical in their eyes. And what we're going to see, the way Mark lays this out for us, and we're going to see this over the course of the next three weeks, is different people within that ruling elite kind of step up to the plate and take their turn. Different groups. First, it's going to be the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Next week, we're going to see the Sadducees. And the next week, we're going to see the scribes. Everybody wants their opportunity. Now, it's in, in, in reality, this, remember, Mark is, is, is recording this force in a way that we can understand it. So it probably doesn't just happen like one after the next after the next. But, but Mark is showing us that, that this elite group of people is, is very threatened by the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus is not swayed by their power and authority that he is willing to stand and preach truth there in Jerusalem during this week. So the question, that was first, who's posing the question? The first people that come to him after kind of the whole Sanhedrin does at the beginning of the chapter is two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now the Pharisees we've experienced quite a bit in the gospel of Mark as they were the kind of the ruling power in the countryside. They ruled the synagogues. And so in, in Galilee, they were the main opposition to the ministry of Jesus. But in Mark chapter three, we're told that they had joined forces with another group of people who typically they hated, who were the Herodians. The Herodians were people who were loyal to the dynasty of Herod. Now, Caesar is mentioned here. Caesar is the ruler of all of the Roman Empire. But within the Roman Empire, there were lesser kings. There were lesser rulers. And for several decades now, that the ruler over the area of what was known as Palestine, Judea, Judea Galilee, and the surrounding areas uh, was the Herodian dynasty, Herod the Great, uh, up until just about the time uh, after the birth of Jesus and then his children and so on after that. And there was a group of people, kind of a political party, really, if you will, who was, who was invested in, not in Rome ruling in Israel, but in Herod and Herod's dynasty ruling in Israel. The Pharisees and the Herodians were the far sides of the two political parties. But, you know, 
political parties tend to make a circle. When you get the, the, as far away as you can possibly get, you actually start getting closer together. Both of them hated Rome for very different reasons. The Pharisees hated Rome because they didn't want any non-Jewish ruler in Israel. The Herodians hated Rome because they wanted Herod to be the ruler in Jerusalem. So this is, in some senses, the very far right and the very far left. And in Mark 3, they come together to start to plot to kill Jesus. And now they've come to question him because they believe that they can trick Jesus that if they're standing in the temple, they are able to catch Jesus in saying either you should or shouldn't pay your taxes, that one side or the other is going to be able to then give proper accusation against Jesus to kill him. They consider themselves wise, but Jesus recognizes, we're told in the text, their hypocrisy. And so he asks them simply, as an answer to their question, as Jesus often does, rabbis often did, answers a question with a question. He says, do you have a Daenerys? Daenerys was the common coin of the day. It was worth about one day's wage for a day laborer. And it just so happened that the tax that the Pharisees are asking about was known as the poll tax. It was an annual tax that people paid. And it's where we actually get our word census from. It, it literally was the census. It was how you knew how many people lived in Rome. Everybody in the Roman Empire, every man in the Roman Empire for his family paid this tax. And they all paid it the same way with one Daenerys. Could you imagine your taxes only being one day's wage? Well, that's what it was then. Their issue isn't so much of what the money cost, it's how they had to pay it. They had to pay it with a Daenerys. And a Daenerys bore the image of Caesar. At this point, Caesar Tiberius. And on it, it said, son of the divine Augustus. So when Jesus says, whose image an inscription is on the coin, he's getting to the main point. The main point is, Whose image is on it? Tiberius. Whose inscription is on it? Tiberius's is. And what does it say? He's the son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius believed he ruled Rome by divine right. That he was the son of a god. Can we work that out? It's going to be a real long sermon. Let's try again. If I do that, it moves around. It's all right. All right, we ready? We're going to try. I'm going to stand still. So the inscription, the, the images of Tiberius, the inscription is heretical. So when when Jesus asks whose image is on this, he's getting straight to the point of what the Pharisees and the Herodians problem with paying the tax was is that they are having to honor a Caesar that none of them like and none of them want to be their Caesar. And so then Jesus says famous words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we begin with rendering honor and obedience to civil authorities I'm going to make this point in two points. First, all civil authorities exist because God establishes them for a specific purpose. 
Really what I'm gonna set out to do over the next several minutes is help us develop a biblical understanding of government. Not a Western understanding of government or an American understanding of government or a conservative understanding of government, but a biblical understanding of government. So I'll make my statement again. All civil authorities exist because God establishes them for a specific purpose. Let me say it just clearly. Government, in a biblical view of government, government is good. Now, I recognize I offended some of you right there. So let me show you from the text. Go all the way back to the beginning. We will do this in both points today. Genesis chapter 1, God is forming and filling the earth. If you're, haven't, if you're newer with us, I preached through Genesis in 2020. So you can go back about two and a half years on our website and hear a sermon on Genesis chapter 1 where God gives order to chaos by forming and filling the earth. And he says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, And God blessed them. This is on the sixth day, the creation of humanity. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I believe, verse 28, God is ordaining two things for us. The first is the family. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1 is the story of God forming and filling the earth, giving order to chaos. And he does that here. He passes on the responsibility of filling the earth to mankind to be fruitful and multiply. This is the ordination of the family. It's why the family is so important to us. It's one of our six core beliefs. Is what we believe about the family because God ordains the family at the very beginning. But God does something else. He gives instructions beyond just what the family does. He tells them to fill the earth and then he says to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, no, this is not a fully formed theology of government here, but it is the very root of it that mankind is supposed to not only fill the earth, but mankind is supposed to continue order where once chaos existed. That where God in Genesis 1 forms and fills the earth, we carry on that commandment to fill the earth but in a way, not in a creative sense where God formed it, but we continue on its order and God ordains civil authorities to do that, to exercise man's authority of subduing and practicing dominion, continuing the order. Governments bring order. So government is good. Go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, 
Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And we're going to come back to Romans 13 in a few minutes, but let me just give you the principle of Romans 13. Romans 13 is not affirming every action carried out by every civil authority. Civil authorities can and do sin in a corporate sense. Civil authorities, the emperor, a president, a king, a ruler of any kind can disobey what God has entrusted to them to do good. But what Paul is establishing in Romans 13 is the basic principle that these authorities, these civil authorities that we call governments, exist because God has established them. And that God has established them for our good. We need them. We need them to do good. We need them to punish bad. And all that exists because God wills it to exist. Without civil authority, chaos reigns. If we didn't have civil authority, everyone would just do what was right in his own eyes. And as we know from the Old Testament, when man does what's right in his own eyes, chaos reigns. Civil authority helps bring order and it is ordained by God. It is a good thing, not that all governments do good. There are some wicked governments in our world. But yet, in the main, the principle is, the principle that's established in Scripture is that government is good, and not only when the government is exactly like we like it. And this brings us back to the setting of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Jesus is saying this, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's under Roman oppression of Israel. There are times I don't like the things our government does. There are probably times you don't like the things our government does and we're diverse enough in here, we may disagree over things that we like or dislike that our governments do. Can I tell you what, we moved to Virginia and quickly learned that there were two taxes that I just despised. One is that that prepared food tax we have to pay in Hampton Roads. You got to pay something like 14% tax when you drive through McDonald's. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Nowhere else in the world does this, people. And those of us that have transplanted here know that. We're like, what in the world? The other is the amount of money that we have to pay on personal property. The right to park your car in your driveway in the city of Suffolk is just outrageous. Outrageous. I don't like those two taxes. I pay them though. Every time I go through the fast food line, we pay the tax. Every December, who said it in December? Can... Can we not do something about that? Every December 5th, it's like the day before my wife's birthday, we have to send hundreds of dollars to the city of Suffolk to park our car in our driveway. 
ridiculous. And yet, here's where I don't like it, but I recognize that God has established it and he's established it for good and I can recognize that. And even though I don't like those two taxes, it's a little funny, even though I don't like those two taxes, that is nowhere close to being just how wicked and cruel Rome was to the people that they ruled. And yet God, Jesus still says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because God, Jesus understands, Jesus understands what it means for God to establish governments for our good, even Rome. If we go back to the Old Testament, David at the end of his life, king of Israel, who most of the time did good, did not always do good, but most of the time did good, says this at the end of his life. He says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Listen, when government does good, it is good. And and we're not called to be anarchists. We're called to recognize that government is good. Even at times where government does bad, we must still recognize that God in his sovereignty has placed it there. In a few days after saying this, Jesus is going to say something else to a government official, to a Roman in Jerusalem who was sent there because the Jews kept rebelling, Rome sends somebody to Jerusalem to kind of keep them in order. His name was Pontius Pilate. This is who the Jewish leaders eventually turned Jesus over to to be crucified. And Jesus looks at him in John chapter 19 and says, you would have no, no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus can look at the man who is about to crucify him and say, you're sitting in the seat you're sitting in because God put you there. If Jesus can affirm that, then we need to affirm that about every elected leader in our world, about every non-elected leader in our world, for whatever reason, For however much time God has established them in that position, at the very least, we must be able to affirm what Jesus affirms, and that is no authority exists outside of that which God grants. So to establish a biblical understanding of government, we must see that government is good and that God has established them for a specific purpose. Number two, that Christians should honor and obey civil authorities under most circumstances. Back to Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul continues his argument. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says the same thing that Jesus says. Pay your taxes. But, but the point isn't paying taxes. Jesus' point to the Pharisees and the Herodians isn't simply pay the poll tax. Paul's point, writing to Rome, under the rule of Nero, by the way, 
Christians living in Rome. A few years later, Rome would burn to the ground because of just the wickedness of Nero. And yet, Jesus and Paul both say, pay your taxes. Why? Because taxes is a representation of base level obedience to civil authority. Christians, don't cheat on your taxes. Listen, I encourage you, by the way, take every tax deduction you could possibly take. Send as little as you are legally allowed to send to any government. Why? Because I believe you are a better steward of your money than Rome is. Okay? However, just because you believe you are a better steward of it doesn't mean that you get to cheat to keep more of it. So if you own a business, be honest in your deductions. If, if you uh, do taxes, be honest in how you do taxes for people. If you do your own taxes, be honest in how you do your taxes. The very base level obedience to civil authority is when the government sets taxes, we pay those taxes. We obey. Now, I'm not going to solve this debate, but I, I want you to understand something. In our own history, in the history of this country, these verses were heavily debated. In the 1700s, it became a major point of debate between English preachers in England and some in America and colonial preachers. They were asking this question, was it right to support the throwing off of what a colonials called tyranny of the British crown. There are records of decades of debates that exist between these pastors and theologians over, these, over this subject. Now, the sermon's not about should America have revolted against the British crown or not, but to illustrate how serious we should take this because generations before us took it seriously. We should take serious the command of Scripture to live in subjection to the government, to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. His image is on the coin. He owns it. So we give it back to him. But not only obedience, we also honor. First Peter chapter 2 writing again to Christians under the rule of Nero, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Some of you were okay with me saying that we should, even if maybe begrudgingly, obey the government and pay our taxes. But when I start saying that we should honor those in government, that is a step too far for some. But it is what scripture is commanding us even under Nero, the apostle said, honor the emperor. Now, in my 42, almost 43 years of life, I've had American presidents that I thought were pretty good. None of them perfect, but I thought some were pretty good. There were others that I thought were kind of bad, and there were some that I think thought were not good at all. Honor the president. Honor the governor. 
This is why earlier this morning, we prayed for them. One of the primary ways that we show honor to them is by doing what Paul instructs Timothy to pray for kings and authority. This is why we had Barry, one of our elders, do that corporately for us, that we would pray for these people, that it is a way that we honor them. How do your words, particularly your words online, those of you that engage in social media, how do your words honor those that are in authority over us? Not just the ones that you like, whether you like the current president or not, or you like the previous one or not, or you don't like either one of them. Your words should still honor them. That doesn't mean that you can't point out sin. That doesn't mean that you can't question their decisions. You are adults, most of you. You know the difference between questioning something in honor and not. We are called to not only recognize that government is good and obey it, but also in our words and actions, honor those who God has set over us. Render to Caesar the honor that is due him. And here's why, here's one of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons why we do this, but I'm just give you one. From Jeremiah 29, the people of God are about to be taken into exile. They're about to go to Babylon. We're talking about Rome and Babylon here. America's got nothing on these people. Rome and Babylon. They're about to be taken to Babylon. And here's what Jeremiah says to the generation of Daniel, who's going to be taken into captivity. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As Christians, we obey and honor the government because by doing so, we find welfare. Again, not in every case. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. God protected him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace. God protects them. And yet they showed honor. They showed honor to the rulers of Babylon. Ultimately, later in Daniel's life, to the rulers of Persia. Terrible empires in ancient history. And yet they honored them. They sought the welfare of that foreign city because in it they found their own welfare. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's because God is why he is Caesar. And so we honor and obey him in most things, but not in all. Because this morning we prayed for government leaders, giving honor to them, but we worshiped only one Lord. We bowed at the feet of only one God. And so we render honor and obedience to God above all else. This is why Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Chain of command matters. I said the word chain of command and there's probably 50 people in this room whose ears perked up really quick. Because you're either current or past active duty military where chain of command is drilled into your very being. You know what it means to be given an order and to follow that order. You also know what it means for someone higher up to contradict an order. Who do you listen to? You listen to the guy that's higher up. And this is what Jesus is establishing. Yes, Caesar may be the emperor of the known world, but God is God. God is the one that placed him there. 
And so, yes, we render to Caesar that which is due to Caesar, but we render to God that which is due to God. So, again, in two parts. First, a Christian's full obedience must be to God alone. Go back with me again to Genesis 1, where I believe God establishes the foundation for both family and government. God also says this, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When Jesus asks for that Daenerys from the Pharisees or the Herodians, he looks at it and he says, whose image, his inscription is on this? It's Tiberius. It was his picture on that coin. It was his inscription on that coin. But when Jesus says, look at yourselves, what do we see? We see the image of God stamped on every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever walked the face of the earth. Tiberius's image may be on that coin, but God's image is stamped on you. He may own that coin, but God owns you. You and I, my friends, were created in the image of God. And so as the chain of command goes, God always outranks Caesar. So what does that mean for us? It means there are times that we disobey the government. (laughs) I said earlier that we should obey the government most of the time. There are times where we will not. We see this demonstrated for us in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Peter and John heal a man in this same city, right outside the temple, heal a man. And the same Sanhedrin, the same ruling elite, get mad at it. They're really tired of this Jesus problem that they have. And so they call them in. We're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 17, but in order that they may spread no further among the people, they really saw this as a problem, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. So so Peter and John looked directly at the ruling elite, the same people Jesus is talking about. He said, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Acts chapter 5 comes and they do it. They bring them back in. They they put them in jail. They bring them back in. When they have brought them in, they set them before the council. And the high high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. As the chain of command goes. God outranks any Caesar, any government, any authority that derives itself in earthly power. God outranks them. And so if God has explicitly instructed us something in his word, we listen to his word. I'm not talking about some feeling that you have. I'm not talking about some like personal conviction that you have. I'm talking about God has been clear in his word. This is what we see with Peter and John. Jesus says, go and be my witnesses. They go and be his witnesses. And the, the ruling elite say, don't do it. And Jesus says, or Peter and John say, sorry, we're going to do it anyway. We must listen to God, not man. Our official statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message 
says in part this, civil governments being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. So yeah, obey the government, pay the taxes that you don't like, do the things that they're instructing you to do. But when it contradicts scripture, Christians stand and say, no, no. I can still honor the government and stand and say, no. I am going to render to God as first importance in all things, the honor that is due him. I'm going to be obedient to him above all else. And there will be times where the government does not like this. There will be times that the government does not do that which God has instructed them to do, to reward good and punish evil, but they will punish good and reward evil. There will be times that this will be pervasive in our world. There are times that it, there are places right now that it is pervasive. Revelation 13 gives us a stark picture of this. Now, whether you think Revelation 13 is, Revelation 13 is about Rome itself or a progressive revelation of government over time or some future worldwide government yet to come. The point of Revelation 13 remains the same. Let's read it. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. The beast is the government with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears. Its Uh, Its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So he's borrowing from the governments and the visions of Daniel here. Make sure we understand this is a government. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, "Who who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So this is worship of government, entrusted false authority from uh, uh, from Satan himself. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemes against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, of the lamb who was slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, regardless of your view of the nature of revelation, whether it's kind of past, present, or future, the the point remains the same. The enemy will use what God has established for good, for evil at times against God's people. And when that happens, we endure faithfully, obediently to God. If to captivity we go, then to captivity we go. If to the sword we go, then to the sword we go. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So yes, there are times that we have to look at the government and say, no, I'm going to render honor and obedience to God first and foremost. And if he has clearly instructed us in something, then we will do that thing 
regardless of if captivity or sword awaits us. We will endure faithfully before God. Finally, Christianity is international, and Christians should resist attempts to nationalize it. But order of operations is important. God is more important than Caesar. Therefore, God's kingdom is bigger and vastly more important than Caesar's empire. John chapter 18, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's what governments do. That I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. You see, Jesus is not establishing a Roman religion. Jesus is not establishing a Jewish religion. Jesus is not establishing an American religion. He's establishing a way for people from everywhere to be counted as a part of God's kingdom. Christianity is international. It's not tied to one place. It's not tied to one people. It, 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 is, it is a people. The redemptive plan of God for a time was tied to a people. We see this in Exodus 19. God promises his people during the Exodus. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So for a time, the redemptive plan of God was for a specific people in a specific place. Jesus changes that. Jesus really, in a way, fulfills that and now broadens that scope to being for all people. So that when Peter, again, writing at the time of Nero, the same one that's saying, honor the governor, says this about the people that he's writing to, using those same words from Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christianity, it's not about America. It's not a Western religion. It is the way for all people to come into relationship with God, to be brought into his family, to be part of his kingdom. Now, when I say, and I think this requires some explanation, when I say that not only is Christianity international, but that Christians should resist attempts to nationalize it, I want to explain to you what I mean in two parts. First, to resist the nationalization of Christianity means that we resist attempts to use the state to further the cause of Christianity. So we resist the, the temptation and attempts by some to use the state to further the cause of Christianity. We see this most clearly in the Crusades. The Crusades were an attempt to further the cause of Christianity at the sword. We look back on that and think it's an atrocity. But the people that were doing it thought they were doing good, that they were furthering the cause of Christianity by utilizing the state. Back in the, our official statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, the church should not resort, this is a quote, should not resort to the civil power to carry out its work. 
The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the purpose of any form of religion. A free church and a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies to the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men, and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. So we wouldn't want civil powers enforcing what our church believes. So we should also not as a church or even as a people look to the state to enforce what we believe on others. This doesn't mean that we don't speak into the civil realm. We absolutely do. Christianity is the reason that many things are illegal in most cultures around the world. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that murder is illegal. It's a good thing that theft is illegal. It's a good thing that slavery is illegal. These are good things. And Christians have spoken into the the sphere of, of politics for the purpose of morality within culture. That's not the argument here. The argument here is that the Christians shouldn't use the state to make people be Christians. Those people are not Christians. And we see that over and over throughout history in places where it has been tried. You don't convert people at the point, at the tip of a sword. One of our founding Baptist forefathers in England in the late 15, early 1600s was a man named John Smith. He says this. He used this quote this last Wednesday night in my equip class, that the magistrate is not by virtue of his office to meddle with religion or matters of conscience to force or compel men to this or that form of doctrine, but to leave Christian religion free to every man's conscience and to handle only civil transgressions. The church and the state are different and the church shouldn't use the state to enforce people to become Christian. We don't look to civil authorities to make people follow Jesus. But number two, we resist attempts to join Christianity with any one specific people or nation, remembering that every nation will end up in the dustbin of history. We run a risk of tying Christianity to our preferred economic system, our preferred Uh, political system so intricately that to bring Christianity to a people is also to bring things like capitalism and free elections. Listen, that is not the point of the church. We don't enforce political and economic ideals on people. We proclaim the gospel because we recognize that all political and economic ideals will eventually fail. The great English preacher Charles Wesley says this, I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of lords when the king put on his robes. Charles Wesley witnessed the king putting on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can even give to a king? All the grandeur it can afford, a blanket of Uh, of ermine round his shoulders, so heavy and cumbersome, he can scarcely move under it, a huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness, and even this will not endure. It will all fade, church. It will all fade away. So our allegiance, while we honor and obey the government, our allegiance above all else 
is to God. And we don't look to the government to do the things that God's people should be doing. So what? Remind you of our main idea first. Main idea, because it's been a while. Christians should obey civil authorities and the, and the Lord according to the honor due each of them. So we pay our taxes. We honor God. So what? Our honor and obedience to civil authorities is an expression of our true devotion to following Christ above all else. I don't want to appeal to Ephesians chapter 6 for us, even though Ephesians chapter 6 isn't directly related to obeying the government. It's written... Uh, to bond servants, to those who had given themselves over into not slavery as we know it, but a Roman system of slavery where a person could, for a time, pay off debt, maybe even their entire life. They had the ability to buy themselves free. Many, it was the most common form of employment in the Roman Empire, was bond servanthood. And Paul writes to the bond servants in the Ephesian church and says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Paul's instructions to the bond servant is to do their work as unto the Lord. I encourage you today, church, I encourage all of us to obey and honor the civil authorities as unto the Lord. We give glory to God when we pay our taxes. We give glory to God when we obey the law. We give glory to God when we pray for rulers. We give glory to God by honoring them. Are you giving glory to God? by honoring and obeying the civil authorities. But the second is where is your true devotion? It should be to Christ above all else, remembering the call of discipleship. That whoever would, that if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what Mark 8 reminds us, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Jesus is not creating here in Mark 12, a separate yet equal church and state. Caesar is not equal to God. And while we're expected to be obedient to the state and to Christ's command to pay our taxes, the command to give to God what is God's goes far deeper into our lives. God demands everything of us. That same Roman authority who had the ability to crucify, Jesus says, obey them while you take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> so church, our devotion to God exceeds all else as we deny ourselves and recognizing that the Imago Dei, the image of God stamped within us, demands full Honor, obedience, and submission to the one at the very top of the chain of command because his image is in us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Your word is good and it is true and it is convicting to us. Let us marvel at it now, we pray. Show us places, God, where we have failed to honor and obey that which you have 
temporally set over us in the form of government, civil authorities. Convict us of our failure to pray for them, to give them the honor that you have called us to do. Give us, though, the strength, God, to honor and obey you above all else as you instruct us in your word. May we, be, may we obey God above all else. Thank you that you have created us in, in your image and that you restore us to yourself through your son, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Church family, we stand with me as we worship God.